Welcome to episode 127 of the Martin Bailey Photography Podcast. Today we're going to continue to trace our steps around Hokkaido. In January 2008, I held the first MVP workshop over there and was joined by five gentlemen from four countries, basically had a great week uh, traveling around Hokkaido. We, I was going to make this uh, the last episode, but I'm actually going to um, have to stretch it out to four because we're just not going to get through everything in this episode. And also I have uh, some recordings of us on the bus on the way over to the airport after uh, all of the shooting was done on the last day. So I think I'm going to continue and do one more next week and hopefully that will be it. Um, If you're enjoying it, of course, we could could probably uh, continue going on, but I don't think it'll need to go on more than four. So let's get right into it and pick up on day three. We'd spent our second night in another great hotel, the Kusharo Prince Hotel, down by the shore of the Kusharo Lake, where we'd photographed the swans that we finished on last week. The food in the hotels is always great here, and as we stopped in such great places most of the week, everyone was really enjoying the food and the hotels, as well as the traditional sort of hot springs and you know the, the baths, the big outs, outdoor baths as well. And... Um, We'd been taking an hour to 90 minutes or so between getting back to the hotel and meeting for dinner each day. That was really, um, it helped us to wind down a little bit after the day, but also uh, to give us some time to to get some backups done and get the the batteries charging, things like that. And then really sort of led us into a relaxing dinner and some fun and laughter while we reflected on the day. We got up bright and early on the third day so that we could drive up to the Bihoro Pass where we were hoping to catch a sunrise. We had to climb a little way up the mountain from the car park where we left the bus. Unfortunately, as we stomped through the snow in the dark, um, it was, you know, the snow was actually falling as well and it didn't look as though we were going to get much of a sunrise. Indeed, as the time for the sunrise came and went, we realised that the sun was not going to break through the thick cloud that we could uh, now see. Let's take a look at the first photo for today, number 1711, in which we can see uh, just about the only time that we got a glimpse of the sun on that morning. As the sun kind of popped through the clouds, I was shooting with the 70 to 200 millimeter but decided to quickly change that out for the 16 to 35. So I spent a few seconds uh, of the light uh, changing the lens, then reattaching the camera to the tripod with the plate on the bottom of the tripod on the bottom uh, on the bottom of the body, uh, rather than the you know the lens um, plate that I use with the 70 to 200. Then I had a few more seconds to capture this before the light was gone. We can see the island in the middle of the lake that I mentioned last week. Our hotel uh, is away around to the right of this scene on the shore of this frozen lake. There's a road that runs between the foreground trees and the mountain on which we were standing. 
but I decided to exclude them here. I I don't mind having man my man-made elements in landscape shots, and indeed, uh, a few years ago when I visited this spot, I I shot one, and I I'd basically waited for uh, a car to drive along the road so that I could get the the trailing lights, uh, which was uh, a nice a nice shot as well. But I often try to compose shots so that they don't end up um, containing man-made objects uh, as much as possible for at least for for landscape landscape work. But I. Uh, I do appreciate, you know, some some landscape work looks really, really good and and works well with that. So I, I'm, I think it's really just my own style rather than what I, you know, how I like to shoot rather than what I like. I shot this for one sixth of a second at f16 with ISO 50. These were actually the lens settings that were left over from my hurried lens change. And of course, I don't need an aperture of f16 at 31 millimeters, 31 millimeters to get much depth of field. One of the things that we touched on on one of the more workshoppy type uh, conversations that we had on the tour was uh, hyperfocal distance. I did a whole podcast on this in episode 65, but just to recap, with a wide-angle lens set at 31 millimeters as I was here. Um, even with an aperture of f5.6, the hyperfocal distance is 5.7 meters or 19 feet. This means that if I manually focus or focus on something at 19 feet in front of the lens, everything from that point, actually from um, everything from around 3 meters or 10 feet to infinity will be in focus. So going to f16 with a wide angle lens for this scene is totally unnecessary. In fact, rather than saying unnecessary, I probably should say it's it should be avoided because the image actually starts to get less sharp overall as you stop down past sort of f11 or so due to diffraction. Understanding hyperfocal distance can be very useful for getting maximum depth of field though and uh, basically if you're shooting landscapes you really should understand this. It is of course relative to the focal length so don't just go with um, you know the the distances that I just quoted, that's only for 31 millimeters. So if you aren't familiar with this though, uh, I would definitely go back and listen to episode 65 for more information. Near to the summit of the mountain from where we were shooting, uh, there are a number of trees, including the lone tree that we can see in image number 1713. Here I knelt down and set the camera very low to the ground to get the top part of the tree against the grey snow-filled sky and I also wanted some of that dark patch of the trees in the snow to enable me to freeze some snow in the, you know, some falling snow in the frame. Um, I guess pardon the pun there, you know, freezing snow. Um, you know, to, to, to freeze it dead in the, in the, or stop it dead in the frame. To help me to freeze it at this focal length I was going to need a relatively fast shutter speed so at ISO 100 I opened the aperture wide open to f2.8 on my 70 to 200 millimeter lens I was using it at 70 millimeters so at this distance I was still going to get enough depth of field for the tree but I, I also uh, you know it helped me to freeze the snow by throwing the background and the foreground out of focus so that only a certain um, you know, part, a certain depth of the image and snow was actually going to be in sharp focus. 
So with that aperture uh, of f2.8, f even on the relatively dull day, I got a shutter speed of 1 200th of a second. And you know, I, I can appreciate that you're not going to be able to see the snow that well on the website image, but uh, I think I got the effect that I was looking for. And on a, you know, when viewed larger, you can see the specks of snow there against the dark background. So I'm, I'm relatively happy with the shot. After the dawn shoot from Bihoro Pass, we went back to the hotel for breakfast and then set off for a long drive to Daosu on the Shiretoko Peninsula. Uh, we stopped a few times on the way over there when the guys spotted something interested to shoot, interesting to shoot, and we had some fun sort of chatting on the bus. Once into the small harbour town of Laosu, though, we visited the Hikarigoke Cave, and Hikarigoke basically means a luminous moss which can be seen in the cave during the warmer months, um, but not in the winter. In the winter, I like to visit this uh, cave for the ice pillars that we can see in image number 1715. The water that seeps through the cave roof freezes similarly to, similarly to stalactites and stalagmites, and this shot was taken with an off-camera flash I'd actually not brought my flash with me from the bus, but I'd held Aaron, one of the participants, flashes for a while, so borrowed his STE2, the speedlight transmitter, and put it onto my camera to fire his flash, uh, which Aaron held for me um, for just a couple of shots. We spent around an hour here shooting the ice pillars and surrounding subjects of interest, but then made our way to the boarding house that I had booked us in for the night. Now, I'm going to withhold the name of the boarding house. You could probably find this if you did some searching around, but uh, al although it's you know, it's not really secret, they don't really um, want to publish the, the boarding house much more than it's or it already is. They're being overrun with visitors and starting to feel the pressure a little as they can't increase the size of the the size of the boarding house uh, or the number of visitors that uh, that can turn up there for one special reason let's look at image number 1718 to see the reason here we can see one of four blackiston's fish owls that visit the man-made pool in the river in front of the boarding house uh, to catch fish uh, that you know are placed in there to attract them. It is uh, definitely something to think about when we hear that wild animals are given food to attract them for photographic purposes. I myself was wondering about this and had long, uh, well, had a, I had a long conversation with the owner of the boarding house while some of the guys were outside shooting later in the evening. Before I, I came, I'd heard that the fish owls' um, numbers were on the decline across most of the island due to, as it often is, man's encroachment into their, in, into their domain. This was very much the case with the cranes that we looked at on the, the first and second days of the tour. They were almost extinct until man started to feed them, and that's just what happened here. There was a man uh, that started to visit the area some time back and he built a pool, a larger pool, with by just placing rocks in a circle um, just a few metres behind this uh, even smaller pool that we see here. 
and into the pool he dropped live fish, which basically um, made it easier for the owls to catch. So you know he he drove here every day for quite a, from quite a distance to feed the owls, without really wanting to photograph them initially, but started to find it a lot of work, and so asked the owner of the boarding house to take over during the week. And he continued to visit at weekends, but basically the feeding became the responsibility of the owner of the boarding house. Thanks to this feeding, the owls were able to raise 17 young over the years, which was pretty uncommon, um, especially these days. It may be um, a little unnatural, uh, but then so is man's intervention, so... I guess I'm kind of okay with them trying to put it right in this way and it certainly gives us a chance to photograph something that would be a lot more difficult without this. As a byproduct, obviously, um, not just us, but a lot of photographers got wind and started to stop at the boarding house and shoot the owls like this. And we arrived at the hotel um, just before, maybe 30 minutes to an hour before dark, before it really started to get dark. And a nature guide working in the area called Wakasa-san had helped us to set up um, our off-camera flashes. This was the second thing this week, as I mentioned before, that I had no experience with. I don't use flash much myself, and I'd bought, my, I'd bought a, an STE2, the Speedlight Transmitter, for this part of the trip. And I'd really um, had no idea at this place where to, where to put our flashes and of course, the flashes, um, you know, were going to be in the. They were going to be put on tripods in the river, and you know, basically, I was ready. I'd spoken with the, the, the you know, the owner of the boarding house, and I, I got a pretty good idea. But uh, it turned out that Wakasasan was there and helped us out, and he, he was really just invaluable. He also loaned us some stands for the flashes for those participants that didn't have supports and basically just was a, such a huge help. My flashes were going to be off camera and turned on for a number of hours. So I'd attached external battery packs to each and that's the CPE4 compact battery pack from Canon. This holds eight additional batteries uh, to extend the battery life and also to, for, it gives them faster recharging. The flashes were to be fired by the STE2, and that fits in the camera's flash shoe. There were two other uh, participants using the STE2, so we selected different channels to avoid firing each other's flashes and losing control of our own, of course. The whole uh, setup did few, po pose a few problems. Firstly, even with the additional external batteries, the cold started to get to them. I found that Although I should have been able to recharge the flash um, to almost keep up with the 5 frames per second of the 1DS Mark, II, uh, Mark III, it just wasn't able to do so. Also, as we were working in very dark conditions towards the end of the evening while fumbling around in the dark, I accidentally changed my channel from 1 to 3, and so had not only lost control of my own flashes, but I was flying, uh, firing the flash of one of the other guys. And it just turns out um, this was Aaron, and we'd been talking a few moments, a few, maybe 30 minutes to an hour or so earlier, saying, I wonder what this hold button is on the STE2. And it turns out that that was to stop you from messing around um, in the dark and switching channels and things. It basically just uh, holds all of the buttons. It, it 
stops you from accidentally changing anything. So an important lesson that learned there for both of us. But um, obviously, you know, th this is one of those things where, as I said, it's this was not something that I was used to doing myself. And just not knowing your gear in situations like this is, is always a killer. Uh, unfortunately, I'd not had time to do much more before I came other than just sort of set it all up and make sure that it works. But, you know, this is one of those things that really uh, I'll never forget, and I'm sure Aaron won't as well. Uh, we figured it out um, pretty quickly, though, uh, but Aaron's four batteries in his single flash were already um, incredibly low. So I left my two flashes in the stream and turned my channel over to Aaron for a while and went, to, went into the boarding house to leave him to it. By this time, there were uh, only three of us still shooting, as the other three guys were already in bed. It was at this time that I had the long chat that I mentioned earlier with the owner of the boarding house. As I say, I don't use flash very often, so despite my being asked many times, um, this is why I haven't done a podcast on flash photography yet. I will go through um, my other settings now, but... You'll have to wait uh, until I get more experience with Flash, um, you know, before I, I do a, a, a full podcast on this. I have been into using my twin light in macro photography, um, and I, I do use the, um, my, you know, just a, a, a single flash on the camera uh, for bouncing the, you know, light, light around or fill in flash. I, I use it, but just really not enough to be able to speak to you confidently about it. So, uh, you know, it's going to take a little while longer before I do a flash photography podcast. When I do use flash as the main light source, I usually have the camera in manual mode and I just select the shutter speed and the aperture and let the camera give me enough light to eliminate the shot um, based on its own metering. And I find that it's really just very good at doing this. So it's, there's not a lot technically to worry about when the flash is the only or the main light source. Here I used uh, 1 200th of a second and an aperture of f6.3. And I was shooting with the 70 to 200 millimeter with a 1.4 times extender fitted. I had started shooting with the 300 millimeter f2.8, but I found that it was just a little too tight to get the owl in. Uh, as they sort of spread their wings and jump down into the pools. I should mention before we move on that if you do come to uh, Hokkaido for a future workshop or photography tour, please don't expect this night to be like the rest if we stay here again. It may not be possible to stay here again because of the large number of people that are booking here right now, but if we do, it's not like all of the hotels that we stay in on the other nights. Although the home cooking is great, it's very rough and ready and, you know, they didn't even have a bath or not not a bath that they told us about. It seems that they probably want you to bathe in one of the nearby hotels, um, which you usually can for like $5 um, or something like that. Uh, but basically, they just were not kitted out to cater for a bunch of guys who need, need a clean up. Uh, we all ended up not bathing until the following night, so... Uh, I was pleased that we were booked into another really nice hotel for the last night. Um, I mentioned at one point, I think, but really we were here um, for the owls and we had to put up with um, with the the conditions of the, board, the boarding house. 
Um, on the other hand, it is a very, it's an amazing experience. You know, you basically um, spend the time in, a, a, I wouldn't say traditional, it's just a normal um, Japanese person's living room um, where you all eat together and then go to you know, the rooms and sort of, you know, crash out on the ftons instead of beds. And it's it's all just really sort of, you know, it's it's a totally different experience. So I definitely wouldn't say that it's a bad thing. I got to bed after midnight, uh, after the owl shoot, and I think we were up again, um, what would it be? I think around, I woke at about 6.30, it was at a later um, time on this day. We we got up for a dawn shoot, we would, we went, walked down to the sea, uh, to, you know, looking out across the harbour, um, but there was, you know, very heavy cloud, not a lot to shoot, um, and basically we were just... Uh, shooting what we could until we knew what the weather was going to be like because we were due to go out on the sea this morning um, to shoot the stellar sea eagles and white-tailed eagles on the ice floe. And I'd been sort of contract contacting with the skipper and we would um, we were hoping to go out. To, it's the Sea of Ohotsuko, I'm, I'm not sure how you say it in English, um, but basically the, you know, the sea up there uh, to the eastern side of Hokkaido and the the weather was just not looking great um it we postponed the you know putting the boat out for a while and then uh, while while waiting the we and I also went for a drive up the coast with the skipper and it really helped us to realize that it was just not going to be worth putting out on this day this was a great shame especially when you consider that the previous day had been amazing apparently um but this was one of those things that just wasn't to be. The ice flow hadn't, had, uh, well, it, it basically, it, it crawls around the um, the top of the peninsula, but it had drawn back to the tip of the peninsula overnight. And although we could have sailed out to that point, because of the, the cloud being so low and the mist around the, the end of the peninsula, um, the eagles would not have been able to see us there. And if they can't see us, apparently they don't make their way out there when you... Uh, you know, when you sort of throw the, the fish heads and things out onto the ice, which is, again, one of the things that, that they do to attract them to, uh, you know, so that you can photograph them. But basically, they weren't going to be able to see us, and so it, it wouldn't have been worth going out there. Uh, it really just would have been a waste of time and a waste of the money, really, to, that we would, pay, we would be paying to go over there. So, a little disappointing, we started to drive around the peninsula to Utoro, the, on the other side of the peninsula, where we were going to spend our last night, and all was not lost, though, uh, on the eagle front. We kept our eyes on the trees as we drove away from Laosu, and as we did, there were a number of um, occasions where we, we got a chance to shoot the eagles in the trees. Let's take a look at image number 1719, which is one that I got during one of these stops. We literally just stopped the bus on a straight and jumped out quickly to shoot the eagles from the side of the road. I had these two stellar sea eagles lined up and I'd gotten a few shots when I saw that the top of the two birds flexed himself to take off. So I got ready for the shot and sure enough he took to the wing. I shot this and another frame as he flew through the scene, but decided to upload this one. I got another shot of the second eagle taking off most, uh, just moments later, um, but we'll just look at this one today. This 
second shot is online. You know, the, the, the one that I just mentioned is online at martinbaileyphotography.com if you want to check it out. And again, I'll put a link to all of the, it'll just list all of the images from the trip into the show notes. There was plenty of light at this point, so at ISO 100 I was able to shoot at f5.6 for one four, uh, 640th of a second. I was using the one4 times extender with the 600mm for this shot, and I cropped just a little bit of the top left and the... Um, Sorry, the top of the of the shot and the left side to just remove a few unwanted elements and give us a, a larger view of the eagles. On advice from the guide that had helped us on the previous night, Wakasasan, we decided to head over to another peninsula called the Nutske Peninsula. This is really just a slither of land that reaches out for a few miles into the ocean and it leaves a, just a, a few feet deep stretch of seawater that just really stretches for miles and miles between uh, the peninsula, the slither of land and the mainland. Unfortunately, by the time we got out there, the eagles and other birds that we'd heard uh, that, that were there in the morning had gone. So we spent a bit of time exploring the beach and the inland sea area and once again uh, headed back and started to go over to Utoro where we'd spend the, uh, the, the you know this night. Having taken steady a steady sort of drive around the peninsula, stopping at Notsuke, we started to drive into Utoro at um, about 4 p.m. Uh, as the sun was really sort of nearing the horizon. Let's look at image number 1722 to see the scene that we were greeted with. The sunset was not much to shout about but what we can see here is the ice flow it's basically a frozen sea with small channels of sheet ice connecting the larger chunks of ice had we been out on the boat earlier in the day and not gone over to Nodske on a bit of a, a wild goose chase we would have arrived here a little um, earlier with a little more time to shoot this but I'm not too concerned that we didn't, as it didn't turn out to be that cool. That you know, unfortunately, um, as well, the eagles don't make their way around to this side of the peninsula because it's just so much colder than the Nausa side. This side uh, takes all of the cold weather uh, almost directly from the weather patterns that buffer the coast um, from Siberia. Uh, you know, so, so it's just much less enticing to the eagles than the other side. I shot this uh, at 80mm with the 70-200mm for 1 15th of a second at ISO uh, 100 with an aperture of f11. With the last few minutes of light we literally pulled up into the car park of the Oshin Koshin Falls. I think I've mentioned before but basically um, Oshin Koshin is it's one of the old Ainu words for man and woman. Basically. Uh, one of the falls, it's a double falls, and one of them is sort of stocky and masculine looking, and the other one is more slender and feminine. Here I quickly shot image number 1724. This was a slow exposure at 15 seconds with an aperture of f8 at ISO 100. I used the 70 to 200mm lens again at 200mm uh, for this shot and was really just looking for a portion of the falls that would look good cut away from the rest. 
I shot the falls with a wide angle as well, but I wasn't really happy with the results, so I um, I haven't uploaded any of those. And I'd actually loaned my 70 to 200 millimeter after a few shots to one of the participants, um, as a, you know, basically they'd uh, they'd not got a longer lens, so uh, I didn't really do much of the shooting myself here before we headed over to the Shiretoko Daiichi Hotel for the night. And uh, this place is another luxury hotel, which really made for a great venue for our last night together. In Japan, they call buffet-style dining Viking, after the Vikings who were famous for their banquets. Um, there is even a huge Viking ship that's made of wood in, in the, like as a centerpiece in the room to help set the scene. And I have to say that this hotel really knows how to throw a banquet. Everyone agreed that this is one of the best banquet halls that they've ever visited. And you can literally get just about any type of food here from uh, from sort of freshly uh, made sushi to a huge like a chocolate fondue. And Andrew, one of the participants, actually uh, got a chocolate fondue American corn dog which, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was the only piece of food that we uh, took from the, you know, the buffet that didn't actually get eaten, for obvious reasons. So, as we couldn't get through all of the images that I wanted to look at today and uh, I also you know I would like to play as I said earlier some recordings uh, of comments from the participants on the bus on the way over to the airport at the end of the tour so I'm going to cut this off uh, here for today and do one last episode in the series Uh, please join me again next week and see what happens on the last day of the tour And with that, all that remains to be said is thanks for listening and you have a great week, whatever you're doing. Bye-bye. Photocastnetwork.com, your photography resource in the potosphere. Photocastnetwork.com.